meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Spiritually Blue, The Dharma of Depression. In this episode, we explore the intersection where sadness and depression meet, and how meditation practice helps us land on the side where meaning, love, creativity, and compassion live. This talk was recorded in 2014. Today we are joined by Susan Piver. Susan is an authorized meditation instructor in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage and the New York Times bestselling author of six books, including the award-winning How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life and The Wisdom of a Broken Heart. She has practiced meditation for over 15 years and teaches around the world. Here's Susan to take away the discussion. I want to start just by asking everyone to please close their eyes. And I'm not going to make you do anything weird, but please close your eyes. And, and no peeking. And place one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly. And say to yourself silently the following I am basically good. And that doesn't mean sort of good, it means the basic substance from which I am composed is goodness. I am basically good. All beings possess such goodness. All. Knowing this, my heart opens. And when my heart is open, I am strong. go and open your eyes. Thank you. And I just want to start by asking you to notice how does it feel to say those things to yourself. I am basically good. All beings possess such goodness. Knowing this, my heart opens. When my heart is open, I am strong. I made that up, by the way, so like the Buddha didn't say that or anything. But there's something about how you feel, how you hold those, what I would call truths, that has a lot to do with what makes us feel depressed and also what the pathway is from or with depression. So just something to contemplate as we talk this evening. So I I have a few things that I want to say about depression and then I want to have as much of a conversation as possible because what I have to say is just what I have to say. So I want to tell you that my um, uh, whatever insights I have into this topic are coming from the inside out based from based on my own experience 
I'm not reporting to you about things I've read about depression. I'm telling you from my own experience of depression, which has been my whole life. Let's say since I was a child, uh, like a little child, like two or three, I have had this, and I'm sure many of you can relate, and there, it's not an unusual thing particularly, but it is a meaningful thing. So I have worked my whole life up to this very day, this very moment, with what it means to be depressed and the mystery of it, the mystery of what makes it arise and the mystery of what makes it dissolve, still very much involved in. And I also, <laughs> I feel like this is true confessions, I also ha suffer from panic attacks. So I've been a meditator for 18 years and I'm a meditation teacher and I've written books and so on, but this still happens. And I would say, however, that my experience as a meditator has changed things a lot. And it hasn't, not in the sense that it's made those things disappear, but it's offered a particular way to hold those things that I have found very useful and empowering even. And I want to share some of that with you tonight. So, okay. The great feminist icon and awesome person, Gloria Steinem, said in an interview where she was talking, the interviewer was talking to her about the death of her husband. And, and they had been married a short time, apparently, and this was just probably five or six years ago, and he died. And the interviewer said, you must be depressed. And I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the, the gist of what she said. She said, I'm not depressed, I'm sad. And the interviewer said, well, what's the difference? And she said, when you're depressed, nothing has any meaning. And when you're sad, everything does. So that, that is what we are going to explore tonight in some way is the sort of juncture where sadness and depression meet and how they sort of dance with each other and most importantly, how meditation practice, and this is again my personal experience, it's not my, something I read, um, helps us land firmly on the side of sadness, which is also the side where meaning and love and creativity and compassion live. <laughs> I wish I could say that that wasn't true. But in my experience it is, and so you could inspect your own experience for that truth. But there is tremendous potency in sadness, and there is not so much in depression, which feels frozen. Does that make sense? Do, do you relate to that difference? So, according to the great meditation masters, 
um, of our age even, when they have spoken about depression or written about it, which is not that often, but in the last probably 40 years, more perhaps has been written on depression by great meditation masters than in the whole rest of the Buddhist, you know, the history of the Dharma combined. They don't think it's such a bad thing. And I've really thought about that. Why? Because it really does not feel good. And P.S., I'm sort of exempting chronic biochemical depression that is completely debilitating. That end of the spectrum, I'm sort of exempting from, these, from this talk because that's a different situation. And some of these things may apply and some may not. So this is more your uh, kind of not quite that extreme. So why did they say it's such a, not such a bad thing? Well, in one sense, you could say that if you're not depressed, you're kind of not paying attention because there is so much to process right now in terms of the diff just the difficulties of our world and the difficulties of just managing a day with tremendous speed, tremendous inputs, and where we just see and feel suffering constantly, just walking down the street. And when it touches you, it means something. <coughs> and if you're sort of, sort of, if you're not finding some kind of dance with depression, there's certain things that maybe you're not allowing yourself to see and feel. So one thing they say is, is it's kind of a sign of intelligence. I agree with that. Also, because we are moving so fast, because the world demands it of us, and also now because we're just used to it, and when things start to slow down, we actually become anxious. Like you leave the house without your phone, and you have to wait in line, and you don't have anything to check. You could get anxious because we're used to constant inputs, constant entertainment, constant occupation. Depression makes you sort of slow down. You don't have a choice. Everything slows down. And I know it doesn't feel good, but you have a chance to observe certain things more carefully within yourself and in the world around you. So. They, it is suggested that there are five things that we can apply in relating with our depressions, and they all relate to the practice of meditation. So the first quality <clears throat> that is called for and that arises from meditation practice is called courage. And here, courage doesn't necessarily mean you're going to triumph over your maladies and win the fight with depression, it sort of means the opposite. It means you are going to look at it. You're going to allow yourself to feel it. Courage here is more synonymous with a kind of softening than it is with a kind of boldness. And it actually is, however, very bold and very daring to look at your actual experiences that are difficult. Because 
the great majority of uh, advice and the things that we mostly try to do with depression is ways to solve it, get away from it, make it go away, deny its existence, put it in a box. But here the advice is don't do that. Don't do that. Sit down in your darkness. Allow it to arise within you and feel it. It's like going into a dark cavern and sort of screwing in a light bulb. This courage sort of illuminates the space. Not to dispel it, but so that you can see what's happening. This is, to me, the most courageous thing that you can do, is allow what you don't like to be present. Because you could say that our depressions escalate exponentially the more we try to turn away from them. They are almost like if you could externalize or anthropomorphize your depression, it would be almost like a small child or an angry child who is just sort of saying, look at me, look at me. And when we disavow those parts of ourselves because they are unpleasant to feel, and they are, we hurt ourselves. In a sense, we are disrespecting ourselves. But when you allow what you feel to be present, and this is really interesting because when you allow it to be present with the agenda of now it will go away faster because someone told me if I allow it to be here, that's good, that doesn't count. <laughs> it's just allowing it so that you can actually feel it. That in itself is empowering. And when we're depressed and struggling with these very dark states, it's incredibly disempowering. But Buddhist wisdom, or the wisdom of meditation practice, doesn't say move away. It says expand to accommodate. And when you start to look at your own mind, as we do in meditation practice, and the instruction is not think happy things, or disavow negative things, but instead notice what arises and expand to include it, which simply means notice it. Let your mind go there. And you find that there is no end to the amount that your mind can expand. And there is basically nothing that it cannot accommodate. Even if it's only for a moment, you can completely accommodate what arises within you. And one of the reasons that you can, and I'm telling you this from my personal experience, is because there has never been a feeling in the history of the world big statement, that has been permanent. So you can afford to be brave. And you can take the seat of sort of power in relation to even your most disempowering inner states by saying hello and feeling it. And feeling it, I would just like to say, is different than telling yourself the story of where it came from. Although that can be very useful, 
in certain contexts, that is not indicated in this particular strategy or method. What's indicated instead is to actually feel. This is a lost art of ancient times, I would say. And the thing that to be fully here, we each in our own way have to find a way to recover the sort of grace of feeling. And what feeling means here is where is it in your body? Not what made it happen. Does it make your chest feel tight? Does it make your shoulders go like this? Does it make you feel really heavy? Does it make you feel like insubstantial and light, like a wind could blow you away? Like what is the texture? of this feeling. So in this way you bring a kind of mind of inquiry and curiosity to this very difficult state that normally makes us just want to shut down and go anything but you. So can you see why this is so courageous? It's like you're opening the door to it. And Pema Chodron said, you know, the pith instruction of all time, period, in the history of instructions, which was uh, when dealing with difficult emotional inner states, to feel the feeling and drop the story. So if you remember nothing else from, you know, the entire canon of Buddhist knowledge, <laughs> have it be that. Feel the feeling and drop the story. And this is the source of power. So the first step is courage, which means allowing. And once you allow, you can bring in the second step, which is called awareness. So you've screwed in the light bulb. You said, let's have a look at this. And now you can see what's there. And interestingly, when you start to notice your depression, not just on the meditation cushion, but as you go through your life, you know, even though it feels like a heavy brick of solidity that is just pulling you down, it actually isn't. It is constantly fluctuating. Sometimes it is super heavy and you just can barely get up and you feel that your will, it's just like in depression there's a kind of, your will has almost no bearing, like I want to do this, or I will myself to, to go here or learn about this or try that. Your will is no longer functioning, which is a really weird and scary feeling. But anyway, when you start to place your awareness on the depression, again on the cushion or off the cushion, you see that it actually is kind of permeable. It kind of, sometimes it's solid and heavy and obliterates everything, and then sometimes it kind of softens and lightens up a little bit, and then it gets heavy again and it lightens up and it disappears altogether and then it smacks you in the face, and it's actually fluid and almost alive. And it's not a, a heavy 
weight rock tied around your neck. Only sometimes. But again, this sort of spirit of inquiry, how does it feel from moment to moment to moment is possible, the awareness is possible when courage um, enters the situation. And I would like to tell you that just sitting on the cushion with the intention to meditate, to look at your mind, is already like extreme courage. That would be a good television show. I would watch that show. Extreme courage. It's like daredevil thing to do. So just sitting on the cushion to be who you are is the foundation of all the courage you will ever need. Then you can have some awareness where you start to come into relationship with this thing. So instead of feeling ashamed of it or uh, blocked by it or uh, identified by it, because when you're a depressive person, that can often feel like your identity. That's who you are. But instead of that, you simply extend the hand of friendship to this part of you by saying, I'm going to be with you. And fr our best friends, the friends that we like the most, <laughs> tend not to be the ones that get up in our face and tell us what's wrong with us and how, what we need to do to change, and how come this is so how, what you're doing right now is so embarrassing. But that is usually how we talk to ourselves. We say things to ourselves, especially when we're depressed and our self-esteem is low, we say things to ourselves that if anyone said them to us, we would punch them in the kisser. Because they're so unkind and so disrespectful. But just with this quality of awareness and being with, you're sort of saying, let's get to know each other at the very least. Does that make sense? I know I'm going like this, but I'm trying to see you all. So then the third quality that arises from courage and awareness and that really helps with depression is called joy, which is... <laughs> I was reading an article earlier today written by the great, fairly recently deceased Kagyu meditation master Trala Rinpoche, who wrote a great, great piece on depression. If you just Google depression and Trala Rinpoche, you'll find it. Um, <laughs> he said, joy is not the same as elation, which is always a problem. Elation is always a problem, um, which I just found very interesting. He, he said the Tibetan word for joy does not mean elation or ecstasy. It means something like no longer being a yo-yo, <laughs> no longer vacillating between depression and elation, elation and sleepiness, but instead an ability to constantly return to center. That is, the, in Tibetan, that's what joy, how joy is defined, as the ability to just not be co-opted by this or that doesn't mean that you don't feel incredibly happy and joyful, you know, elated even at some points, but you don't get caught by it always has to be this way or, oh, because I feel this way, now it means everything in my life is fixed and okay. Nor do you get trapped in 
nothing is ever going to be okay and everything sucks and I am completely miserable. You sort of see both of those as just things that happen and you're able to ride the situation. And you can see, I'm sure, how your meditation practice teaches you how to do that. So meditation and joy have a good, strong connection. And then the fourth and fifth things are called love and compassion. And these too arise from our meditation practice. And oddly, they don't feel particularly good at first. So I remember when I, uh, the more, this wasn't that long ago, but it was maybe six or eight years ago, I had really taken sort of a deeper, deeper dive into my meditation practice. I just amped it up because I was like, I'm not getting any younger. I might as well go for this. And I noticed, however, that the more I practiced and the more retreats I went on and the more I tried to be compassionate and cultivated and make commitments and vows and generosity and discipline and patience and all the paramitas, tried to bring them into my life, the sadder I felt and the more I cried. And I remember thinking, this can't be right. This cannot be right. That the more you practice and the more sort of spiritually committed you are, or the, sad, the more sad you are. I, I mean, I, I sort of thought about people like my teacher, Sakyong Mipam, and the Dalai Lama, you know, these icons of practice and compassion. I was like, I don't think they're in their rooms crying on their beds. I mean, maybe they are, but they didn't seem like it. Whenever I saw them give talks, they didn't seem like they were going to leave and then just go cry in their rooms, which I was doing. <laughs> so I wanted to ask my teacher, Sakyang Mipam, what am I doing wrong? And I did. I did have a chance to ask him, but there happened to be 200 other people in the room, and he was giving talks on compassion. And I was like, I have to ask this question. And when I walked up to the mic, as soon as I got up to walk to the mic, I started to cry. It was really, really embarrassing. I was like, I, can't, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get this out. I felt like a complete loser. Like, just pathetic. Anyway, I was, managed to choke out this question, what am, I, you know, what am I doing wrong? How come the more I practice, the more I cry? And he looked at me and said, you know, some of the world's greatest meditators have cried a lot. And I think about that all the time. Because he was sort of saying, well, I do sometimes go to my room and cry. I don't think it's quite the same. But that this encountering of vulnerability and tenderness and fragility and opening ourselves to our own and others' suffering brings tears. And the difference, I assume, between them and me is that they have opened wider than me, not narrower. They have opened their hearts more 
completely, in fact, and then somehow found a way to stabilize in the open state, as opposed to myself, who's opening and closing and opening and closing and you know, buffeted by basically my last email. <laughs> you know, if it was good, I feel good, and if it was bad, I feel scared. So they have somehow stabilized in this state of complete openness where everything touches them. So I, I want to say that to you so that you can know if you struggle with, these, with this darkness, with a sense of being pinged constantly by the suffering of this world and having a sense of, I, I don't know, I, I'm one person, what can I possibly do? That this too, while it is very hard to bear, is a very precious gateway to kindness and wisdom. And in fact, without it, without finding your essential vulnerability and sort of setting up camp there, the chance that you will land and claim, land in and claim your highest wisdom and be the compassionate, brilliant person that I know you each want to be without sadness, without vulnerability, it's not possible. So when you tend to be depressed, I would say you also tend to be open. And when you tend to be open, you tend to be creative, you tend to be generous, you tend to be compassionate, you tend to be loving, and you tend to connect with others because there's only one opening. And all of these things are predicated on that opening, on you, you relaxing into that opening. So, I guess I think that's, I feel very, um, in, um, I hope that anything that I said was useful. But I think I'll stop here and see if you have questions or things that you would like to share about your own experience. I would love to hear them. I'm sure everybody else would too. Um, hello? Hello. Um, I've re relatively new to meditation. I've taken um, some courses here and everything. Um, I just more of an observation, I've found that since I've started the practice of sitting that um, a lot of my irrational sadness, like it might be sunset on Sunday night and it's just this kind of feeling that comes over of, you know, heaviness, I've found that um, it's there but that it's not as, as permanent feeling. That's great. Yeah. 
So I, I think it's really interesting and also lovely that you say the sadness that comes over you like when you see a sunset. Did you say on Sunday? Yeah, you know, the, it's the end of the weekend yeah. kind of feeling and, you know, or whatever. It, it could be that or any other thing, but there's something about that particular hour that I know in myself that just start to feel a little sad heart. Me you know? too. What is it about Sunday? Afternoon and evening. Yeah, I, I understand. So I feel like what you said just perfectly illustrates this whole point of the relationship between being touched and sadness and how something beautiful and also kind of still because there's a kind of stillness on Sunday afternoon and evening that is different than the rest of the week opens your heart so one way to describe it is sad and I think that's true but it's also a kind of blossoming it's not a constriction so it's something interesting to explore in that sense and you know it's not melancholy has a kind of sweetness in it and in what you describe I hear that those flavors so as a, your fellow melancholic there's something good there thank you thank you mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. How are you? Long Hi. time. Nice to see you. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, I just wanted to share something real fast that I completely related to pretty much everything you said. and just wanted to share my experience um, going in and out of depression or sadness. I used to fight it a lot during that time when I was really going through hard times. And I always felt it in my body more, holding on to wanting this happiness all the time and feeling bad that I didn't have this happiness all the time. <laughs> like, it was this weird world. But then when I started meditating and getting into it and just sitting with it, I got very creative. I started painting and I started like letting it out in different ways, which was really nice. And over time to where I am now, I, I think it's really great to even just have a room full of people in conversation about this. Because it is great to just be in that space and let it open up and get wider. Because you, you get a lot out of it if you let that happen instead of fight it. So I just want to say that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. And what do you know, what was it about your meditation practice that helped you make that transition? Well, I think it was definitely recognizing the story of getting inside of like what would trigger me to get into these state mind states and just constantly seeing the same thing happen in my mind constantly coming up while I was sitting um, and just taking it from there really that's great thank you so much it's funny the the tap that you might turn on for sadness is also the tap that you turn on for love and creativity so they're not you can't pull them apart just interesting Hi. Um, hi. Hi. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Um, I my question is um, I've noticed a lot with my own feelings of depression that 
the anxiety come follows it, not uh, not so much having the feeling itself. Um, like the fear isn't surrounding that, but the ways in which I feel I have to co compensate or overcompensate to uh, make up for it around others. Um, for example, I can be on the cushion and drop a storyline and be with those feelings, but the real challenging part comes when I'm at work and those feelings are there and I feel like I have to ignore them in order to form in the ways that I'm expected to in society. Yeah. Um, and I guess that the, what's the struggle? How would you say you could open yourself up and invite others into your depression without feeling like you're, um, what's the word, maybe um, trying to overwhelm them? Or, you know, how would you be open with where you are um, without uh, bringing others down, I yeah. guess. So do you mean like how do you act depressed and how can you be depressed in front of other people? Or, or how can that not be a problem? How can you view it? What perspective can I take so that uh, I don't feel like I have to close the curtain on it, yeah. but I can still, you know, be with it? Right. Well, closing the curtain on it and being with it are not the same. So, you know, we each have to be very skillful. First, with the way we manage our own depression. I don't mean manage in a, a product efficiency kind of way. I just mean how we relate to it and how we attend to it and how we treat it and how we open to it. We have to be very skillful, which means flexible and adaptable. So as the more you practice, the more readily you can do that on the cushion and off the cushion. But I'd say, you know, in your professional life, you have to be very judicious. You, the thing that is dangerous is for you to lose track of what's going on inside of yourself. Other people don't have to know, or they can know if you want them to, but it's when you don't know what's going on inside of you that it becomes dangerous. So, but when it comes to your colleagues or your profession, then just we have to be judicious. It may not be the right thing to invite them in, or maybe. With our loved ones, again, it's important to be judicious because it can be overwhelming to be with someone who is constantly struggling in the way that you describe and that I also do. Um, so awareness is critical. Awareness of what you're feeling and then it's your responsibility to re relate with it and deal with it. And awareness of the space between you and the other person or people who you may or may not want to invite into it. And then it's a case-by-case, on-the-spot situation. Mm. Good luck. All right, thanks. Thank you. So you made the distinction earlier between depression as um, kind of a psychiatric diagnosis versus depression as a, a fluid emotional state. Can you speak a little bit more about that or how you recognize yeah. the difference between the two? Yeah, it's a good question. Just the, the distinction between depression and uh, crit, uh, chronic, like debilitating 
depression. So, you know, there's not a clean edge between those things. But basically, I would say this is, and I'm not a, th a therapist or a doctor, so I don't know really how they would define it. But if you can't function at all, then that's debilitating. Most of us walk around with our depression and we, it flares and diminishes and then overwhelms us and then as long as there's some fluctuation in it, you know, but if you're in a place where, you have, where you're suicidal or you can't function, then everything I'm saying doesn't apply. You should get That's useful. Hi. Hi. Thanks for a wonderful talk. Oh, um, thanks. It's really interesting how you described how, as your practice deepened, um, you became more in touch or you started crying a lot more. And um, I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little more on what the process was like after um, your teacher told you that some of the best meditators cried a lot. <clears throat> did, it, did the condition get better or did you cry any less? Or? Was there a light at the end of the tunnel? Or, or is yeah. that just a, an important component of being really in touch with your practice? The crying is the light at the end of the tunnel, which is strange. So it, I, the feeling capacity seems to grow, but the space around it also expands. So it's more like something you can hold on good days, on bad days, you're knocked out by it. But it becomes more a source of strength than a, a, something that diminishes you. Right. That also meant in the context that you, that you thought you might have been doing something wrong. Oh, yeah. And when you had asked your teacher, why is this not working? Because I shouldn't feel sad. He said, basically he said, it is working. Right. <laughs> That's a sign that it is working. So, you know, we're here, I would say, to feel and to be human and to open to that experience without any clue of how it's supposed to look or, or resolve. And without that, then we're just sort of skating. I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. Okay. Thank okay, thank you. And I like your, I like your manicure. Okay. Uh, Hi, thank you. You're welcome. Um, there was a, I found myself putting pieces together from my own experiences as you were talking. I've meditated for a long time and gone through therapy and a lot of seeking and dealt with anxiety and depression. And um, I also wanted to talk about the crying thing because my own personal experience in the last year and a half or so is my meditation practice has really deepened and become more consistent. Um, I found something similar happening and it kind of for me touched upon what you did in the very beginning which was um, I've always found depression and anxiety is this confrontational thing within myself it's I have something I feel but I don't want to feel it and I'm not going to feel it so I'm going to do everything I can to not and it's just um, and then once it clicked in that I am basically good Everything around me is basically good. The world is basically good. And I am safe. Then, 
I didn't have to confront or be confrontational with it. I could embrace it and feel it. And it was amazing because I had that experience of um, feeling supported for the first time within myself and allowed to process. And I realized that that's just the release of whatever it is that I'm feeling and the ability to feel sad at the same time. I've had this weird experiences, especially in the last six months, of facing things that feel extremely sad in the moment and then having gratitude for that experience in the exact same time. And it feels a little crazy at moments. Um, but yeah, I really related to that where you were talking about, like in that beginning when you talked about that, and it was an amazing thing because when you talked about that basic goodness, I had that twinge of sadness at the same time, but then I realized how minute it was compared to previously because it's something I guess I feel like I accept more. That's great. That's amazing. How did you do that? <laughs> just practice, practice, you know, just learning to um, to just sit. I think the, the you know, I have an amazing therapist for nine years and one of the things he's always taught me is that what you talked about, like no feeling is permanent. He said that most times we're scared to process or feel something because it, it feels like annihilation. Like when you jump down that rabbit hole, when you feel depressed, it's like looking at this abyss and you think that if I go there, I'm dead. Like Never that's gonna come out. the fear. But the realization is when you just let go and embrace it and look, like you said, look at it, observe it, um, become a part of it and re develop a relationship with it, um, you realize it's not so much an abyss, you know, that there definitely is a side that you, you go through, you know. You can only cry for so much and then your body physically has to stop. That's true. That's all. Thank you. That's awesome. I, I have some... If you feel like I'm, never, I'm afraid to cry, and it's riffing on what you said, because I'll never stop, and once I step in there, I'm, I'm gone. It will eat me up. Here's what I suggest. Look at your watch. Set a timer on your phone or whatever if you have one, and then start feeling sad. Just let it be there. And just let it blossom and swamp you and feel it and cry and do whatever it makes you do and then when it starts to subside look at how much time has passed and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of I'm not joking it's it, it's will be like a minute <laughs> maybe 10 or 15 minutes on a really bad situation. And then, so maybe it'll start to subside and then come back again. We'll look at your watch again. And just get, real, get a realistic sense of what this really is. It's not falling into an abyss forever. It's actually probably not going to last for more than an hour, the whole thing. So you can do it. You can absolutely do it. Thanks. Hi. Uh, Hi. Yeah. I, I just want to say that was one of the most sincere teachings I've heard. Ah. And his comment was also... So um, you spoke a lot about depression and cases where that's something that people have struggled with for most of their lives. But a lot of what you touched upon also resonates from the perspective of an anxiety. And I know the two are connected, but they're also different. Mm -hmm, they are. Can you comment a little bit about um, your approach or strategy or the commonalities between depression and anxiety? Yeah. It's a tough one. 
because they really are different, and I appreciate you pointing that out. And depression feels like mud and slow and slushy, and you can't really, even if you wanted to move fast, you couldn't. But anxiety feels like you're just you are moving so fast. It's like you're someone just put you in the dryer and turned it on, and you're just, it's just terrible. So it's you could the same basic advice applies, which is feel it, which is so unpleasant and uncomfortable. But get out your watch, and. The instruction is always, with one exception that I'm going to mention in a second, turn towards it and allow it and feel it. Then you are in the position of power and it's not overpowering you. But I will say that panic attacks are a different category. And trauma and the anxiety of post-traumatic stress disorder or that relates to traumas of any kind and from, you know, we all know what traumas are. That's a different category. And the advice to turn towards it and feel it may not be the right advice. It may be something you would want to do with a great therapist or with a friend or with some, some support that you can really rely on because trauma is a different category. And as a meditator, I, I have had many people say to me, well, can't you just meditate when you're having a panic attack? And I'm like, no, I can't. I really can't. There's no, it's not possible. Anyway, I have a story I'll tell you at the very end about that. And, but now we'll go over here and then we'll come back. Now I just want to hear your panic attack story. Now I just want to hear your panic attacks. So. Oh, okay. Oh, it's a good um, one. You're awesome. You're always awesome. It's, oh, it's always great to see you. And um, it's your bravery. I mean, you always step up there and talk about things that nobody ever wants to talk about, like, you know, broken hearts, depression, sadness. And you're so joyful and great. And <laughs> I, so I'm, enough I'm of the, the flirting. I, um, <clears throat> um, I, I just actually wanted to talk to you about something that really resonated with me that you said in the context of the broken heart aspects of shattered trusts and things that, you know, attachments in that sense, it's feel the feelings and drop the story. Now, I'm not particularly afraid of big feelings, whether they're highs or lows or darks or brights. It's the drop the story part of it. So could you share perhaps some of your experience or what your magic bullets might be in terms of, I'll dig in. I'll get depressed, I'll cry, I'll laugh, I'll do whatever you know is necessary, and then it's right back to who's to blame, whether it's me or someone else. Right, right, right. So it's the story that's more difficult to deal with than the feelings, in a certain sense. More difficult to deal with, it would be in the sense of feel the feelings and then I'm on the other side of the feelings and then right back to the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some stories are really, really potent and strong. And particularly in relationship and broken heart and... Agreed, brother. Hundred <laughs> percent. So here's what I suggest to people with broken hearts or who have these stories for heartbreak of any kind. And because one of the difficulties with heartbreak is obsessive thinking. 
And there, yes, really. <laughs> and there's so, your mind just wants to go there. There's some kind of a strange comfort in picking the story back up. It's like picking up an old bone or something. It's just picking up your sweats off the floor and putting them on for the 600th day in a row or something. It's, yeah, no, not you. Yeah. I don't mean this not a comment on your outfit. So, one thing that I have found helpful, and I've taught this to a fair amount of people now, and I see that it is helpful not just to me, is to go right to the story. Tell it in writing, in the third person. And when I teach this, like on a weekend, we do it in three parts. The beginning of the relationship, from the time you met to the time you entered a relationship. And there, you just start with one sentence and write to the, right between those two points. And then the next writing session, you write about the relationship, the time you were in a relationship to the time that you thought, uh-oh. And then you write the final third, which is from uh-oh. And then the final sentence of the story is, that's when he knew the relationship in its current form was over. And there's something very healing about the third person. It's like you take a step back, and you can do this with any story that grips you, and just write it about this person who is you, and see what happens. When's your next workshop? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thanks for that. Um, I, I just, I was thinking about this for a, a few minutes, but just with what you just said a moment ago, it, it sort of hit home about not being afraid to feel big feelings and such. And through parts of what you and others have said, I've been sort of sitting here thinking like, well, I'm a musician and I'm an artist, so I can feel anything. And you know, my father died about a year and a half ago, and. Um, you know, our whole relationship was problematic and, and things, and I've thought about it a lot, and I, I think I'm okay with feeling all those feelings and, and the abyss that was talked about and things like this. Um, I think I'm basically there, but I, what, what I was thinking about was that, it, that I think what I need to, to get through and feel is this depression over things that are kind of mundane, that your creativity isn't being expressed, that you gotta do boring stuff every day, that just the things that everyone complains about and just the, to, to, to give yourself space to, that to me feels like a dry kind of grief. Just, just don't super too boring. It's just like everyone worries about that. Get over yourself kind of thing. So does, that, you, does that make sense kind of? It's I like, don't know, like, let me see. Is, is, are you talking about like there's the deep grief of things like when you lose a parent and I'm sorry about that, about your loss thank and you you're welcome and then there's the sort of more kvetchy well it's not exactly kvetchy it's just problems that I've dealt with for many years oh. getting your art out there recognition things like that that don't the they don't seem like as good of a story <laughs> right like if you say, because of a loved one and so on, like that, 
beautiful growth through this. But if like uh, I have to do what everyone else has to do, yeah. and I, like I don't know, it's like the the willingness to let yourself be depressed over mundane things, and that that is sometimes huge. If they bother you for years and years, the mundane things can be just as huge as very huge. Yes, and and also problems just, that just don't go away, things that pl almost plague you, kind of. Yeah, you know, they're, they're like your weird grumpy friends. And I'm sure I have them, and we all have them, and most people have them, I think. I'm not trying to say that they're not meaningful and difficult, but all I can tell you is sort of for me, for me, I, I often walk around feeling like I'm a failure. And I'm not saying that to make fun of myself, because I really feel that way a lot. And now, when I feel that way, I, I feel that way. But I also sort of have this sense of, oh, it's my old friend who I don't like <laughs> has, has come to hang out with me. And the thing that makes my friend really mad is when I say, there's no place for you at this table. But instead, if I sort of say, well, OK, have a seat. And, uh, it doesn't feel good, but it's kind of, that's how it is. That's how it is. And I want to recommend a book called Feeding Your Demons by Sultrum Alioni, which I could spell for you later if you want, but Feeding Your Demons is sort of a way of relating with these chronic um, friends. And it's very profound. It's a deep practice that's ancient. It's called Chud, C-H-O-D. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. But it's a really profound ancient practice, but it's also very, very applicable and doable. So I recommend that. Yes. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. I, I related this especially to when you talked about how uh, when we're in a depression, we sort of lose a sense of agency, uh, like a, a willpower to be able to do things and doing things are very important um, but okay my question I'm not trying to be controversial um, but um, what 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 reason do we have to believe that or what reason do I have to believe that I'm basically good like there's there, there really is no evolutionary basis. Um, the the neurocognitive uh, would say that we have we're some kind of ethical clean slate. Um, I I've had a medit I've had a meditation practice for many years, and and it's never I've never had that insight of hey. I and all other beings are basically good. So like, what, what, what am I missing? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy you asked that question because it's really the most important question on earth. And I can tell you why I think it's true, but I go in and out of knowing it constantly. 
of knowing this goodness. But it's a very important, it's maybe the most important, Sakyong Mipam says it is the most important question facing you and facing our world. Do we actually believe that we are good or not? And I, you can't say, I hope, I wish the answer was good, so I'm going to choose to believe that. You have to actually do the investigation, and it's not simple. But here's the way I think of it. I think that when you're born, as far as I know, no baby is born going, I wonder if anyone likes me. Or I wonder if I'm a good enough baby. <laughs> a baby is born going like this, just reaching. Not from neediness, although babies are needy, obviously, but because that's what's expected. You expect to be embraced, and you expect connection, and you expect love. And then when you don't get it, if you don't, it's traumatic in the extreme, and it's shocking. It's not shocking when you get it, it's just that's how it is. So I always think about that when I'm like, no, people, there's no such thing as basic goodness because there's a lot of basic badness. I think of that and that the way you're born. And then all... You, you, you can somehow access your worldview at the age of one and a no, half? No, no, I just see that. I don't remember being a baby, but I have seen babies. And that's how they seem to be. But I don't remember being a baby. But that's just my own way of thinking about it. I'm not saying that that's the best way to think about it or a way that would speak to you. But I am saying, please ask the question and don't be afraid of whatever your answer is. <laughs> um. I think that uh, a lot of the talk will settle in the next few hours as it uh, sort of rings through my head. But uh, I did, uh, did want to share a part of my recent experience. Um, I uh, recently got introduced to the idea that I might have uh, ADD. And, uh, it has uh, it has really helped me recast some of my uh, chronic experience of anxiety and feelings of being overwhelmed and uh, quite unable to uh, work with certain situations, which is unlike depression in many ways, but is like depression in some. And I felt that uh, my most recent experience trying to be courageous with it and look at it and really pin my experience against all the information that I can gather has been extremely helpful. Um, and, uh, and also difficult, but it's, it's very much similar. Uh, I believe it. And it must be so difficult to watch your mind when your mind may be have attention deficit disorder because even the ability to pay attention to it is somehow part of the malady but you can do it 
I can see. Yeah, there are uh, a lot of new stories that I have sort of uh, that I can collect from other people's experience and other people's uh, journeys that help me when it is difficult to see it happening and when it is quite outside of my um, sort of conscious experience. Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate your willingness to look at it and work with it. And I really believe that your meditation practice will provide the ground for that exploration and also be the path for that exploration and the fruition of the exploration. So I wish you well with it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So I'll just close by saying the first time I had a panic attack, I was on an airplane. And I was suddenly realized that I was extremely claustrophobic. Even now, I, I, you won't see me in the elevator. I'm going up and down the stairs because I don't know why. It just happened, like 10 years ago. I was on, I was like, started to, I've flown, I've lived overseas, I've flown all over the world, but suddenly on this one particular flight, I freaked out. And I started to cry. And I, I saw that as they were about to shut the door, I couldn't do it. I got off the plane. And then I'm like, oh, that was weird. I'll take the next flight. Same thing. I, I'm, I'm like, I have to go. I had to go to Denver for work. I know, I'll get drunk. <laughs> because I don't drink that much. It's just easy for me to get drunk. And it was my lucky day. I went to the bar in the airport, and there were doubles for the price of singles. <laughs> I drank a double shot of tequila, nothing. I drank three shots, double shots of tequila, and I was completely sober because that's how much adrenaline there was in my system. That's how friggin' afraid I was because when you're in that state, you can't get drunk. I don't know why. So I just was, had a headache and went home. I was, what? And then I got a prescription for some, like a Valium-like thing. I went back the next day, and that actually was very helpful because it slowed me down enough so that I could see my mind and how it was working. That was very helpful. But I'm on the plane, and I'm still I'm shaking and crying. And the flight attendant says, are you okay? And I say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Actually, I'm afraid. And I'm not afraid to fly. I'm just afraid of being in a place that I can't get out of. So she says, would you like to talk to the captain? And I'm like, yes. As a matter of fact, I would. And, and later I was like, she probably wants the captain to determine if I'm a crazy and going to be like disrupt the whole flight. Because, you know, the captain has to make that call. So the captain comes out, and he's like king of the captains. He's like pressed and crisp and friendly looking and and he walks over to me he says I hear you're a little afraid to fly and I say yes <laughs> and he says my name is Captain Denny Ferguson I still have back anyway I'll tell you that in a second my name is Captain Denny Ferguson I've been a pilot for 25 years we have a beautiful day for flying the flight attendant's name is Missy I promise I'm going to get you there safely. I was like, okay. 
So the door shuts and we take off and an hour or so into the flight, the flight attendant, this is, flight attendant hands me a business card. And this, I still have this in my wallet. And it's from the captain. It's his card and on the back it says, Dear Susan, I hope your flight is going well. Thank you for your trust in me. Captain Denny. And I was like, I think this may be the best place to be, not the worst place to be. And the th reason I'm telling you this story is because I learned in that instance that if someone would be kind to me, I could do any, I could do it. I could calm down. That kindness is the, is the healing balm. And so whenever I've had to fly since then, and now it's much better now, but still, for some years it was really not good, I would say to the person next to me, or in an elevator, if I had to go up 30 flights or something, I'm a little claustrophobic. Would you mind talking to me until we take off? And then I promise, you know, you won't have to talk to me anymore. Or until I get to my... And without... I've said this to tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, old people, young people, and without exception, they have all, in their own way, said, sure, I'll talk to you. One person just held my hand. A priest read to me from the Bible. <laughs> Thank you. Most people were like, well, sure, I'll, yeah, so, what's your name? Where are you going? Nice weather. You know, they just tried to be chatty, and, and that always calmed me down. So I just will leave you with that thought that if you struggle with these things, and you can find a way to be vulnerable, vulnerable about it and invite kindness, it will restore balance more directly than any other strategy. So thank you very much, and um, I look forward to seeing you next time I'm here. Thank you.